If you would now take a copy of God's Word in hand and turn to Daniel chapter 12. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack, you can turn to page 750. We come to the close of our last section of the book of Daniel and the close to the book itself. Beginning in chapter 10 through the end of chapter 12, you have one final unit uh, in the book. It began with Daniel grieving in chapter 10 and mourning and fasting. And what was it that he was grieving? It, this was three years roughly since the decree had been given that the exiles could return and rebuild the temple. And Daniel has seen much apathy on the behalf of God's people. And there was no revival that he so long desired. And he's an old man now, maybe around 86 or 87 years old. And he is concerned about the future of God's people. And the Lord sends him a heavenly messenger that gives him a great vision. And it takes up the entirety of uh, chapter 11. It's one of the longest sections in the book, and the vision actually spills over into the first four verses of chapter 12. And then there's something of an epilogue at the end of chapter 12, 5 to 13, where Daniel comes out of this vision and he sees this heavenly messenger above the waters, and then two other figures are with him. And there's a conversation that takes place, and that is the close of the book. Now, each week, we could have reviewed in every section of the book of Daniel a theme as succinctly put by Old Testament scholar Trumper Logman. The theme of the book is this. In spite of present circumstances, God is in control and will win the day. It's a good summary of the book of Daniel. In spite of present circumstances, God is in control and will win the day. But here, particularly in the last couple chapters of the close of the book, we see something else of the use of the book of Daniel for the believer. As Dale Ralph Davis has said, Daniel functions as a manual for the suffering church, as it does its New Testament counterpart, the book of Revelation. Both books the main theme is God wins, but there is much suffering for his people between Christ's first coming and his second. There is encouragement in this passage, but it is a somber passage. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help this evening. Would you join me in prayer before we read God's word? Our great God. You are kind to give us your word. That you have not left us in the dark, that you have sent your son, the light of the world, in the darkness. And that you have sent your spirit, the spirit of Christ, to dwell in our hearts. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
the truth of this passage. That we might receive it, understand it, apply it, believe it, that it may shape our lives. That it would inform our hope. That it would renew us in our pursuit of Christ and the goal that's been set before us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked. Behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offerings is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Amen. And so far, God's word. Well, just a couple weeks ago, at the end of fall, everyone was cleaning the leaves out of their yard. And I looked down the block, and one of my neighbors was putting up Christmas lights weeks before Thanksgiving. And this neighbor is known to put up quite a spectacular display, and he was doing it again, this time weeks before Thanksgiving. And I just thought to myself, overachiever. Then a snowstorm came. The forecast had a snowstorm coming that week. He knew what was coming. He didn't know exactly when. He didn't know exactly how much. But what he did know 
informed his actions. It informed the way that he lived. He was prepared because of the knowledge he was given. I think there is a lesson to be learned about interpreting passages like this evening's passage. There is lessons to be learned about interpreting much of the second half of the book of Daniel from my neighbor. When dealing with prophecy, there are many things that are mysterious, especially when prophecy comes to us through the genre of apocalyptic literature. And much ink has been spilled pouring over the mysteries of chapters 7 through 12 of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And there is copious amounts of information and theories to try to take what is here and to predict the future. But sometimes and oftentimes, and maybe this has been your experience with these sections of Scripture to the neglect of seeing how these passages inform Christian living today. And to be clear, I'm in no way saying that we should rule out predictive prophecy. I believe that Daniel was a man of the 6th century, and he spoke about historical events as was revealed to him by God in the 2nd century, and then beyond. But it's the beyond that isn't as clear. In some places, we are given details. In other places, we are not given the details and the authoritative interpretation of some of these images and numbers and symbols. But we are still given truth to inform the Christian life. So to what are we given here at the close of Daniel, here in chapter 12? When the first four verses, the close of the vision, we see that God's people are given hope as they endure until the end. And as we transition to the close, the final note in the book, verses 5 through 13, what are we given? Well, we see that God's people are prepared to endure persecution at the end. Verses 1 through 4, look back with me. God's people given hope to endure to the end. There in verse 1, the very first phrase of this chapter, at that time, is a reference. It's a callback. It's a callback to chapter 11, verse 40, at the time of the end. Now this is a, an interpretive key for us. It's a scary thing to say when you talk about the book of Daniel. But in these visions and prophecies, there are times at which Daniel is told, what you are given is about the latter days. 10 verse 14, chapter 10 verse 14. The heavenly messengers tells them there's going to be a message about the latter days. What is to come, Daniel, in the centuries following your lifetime? The rise of the Persians, the Greeks, and then the atrocities of Antiochus Epiphanes. But then... There's a very clear transition from talking about latter days in which we are given some historical detail to then at the time of the end, which is pointing us further. It goes from speaking of Antiochus 
epiphanies and the crimes and the great tragedy that he inflicted upon God's people in the second century to the final Antichrist at the end of history. And that's what it says in verse 1. It's a terrible time. There shall be a time of trouble such has never been seen before. Frightening times are coming. Terrible times are coming. But the close of this last vision, Daniel is given hope, and so is the people of God. The hope begins with a figure that's been identified. He was spoken of earlier in the, this part of the book, Michael, the angelic warrior. What does Daniel learn about Michael? Well, there it says in verse 1, he's the great prince who has charge of your people. And that though there is terrible times coming that have never been seen before, he will deliver God's people. Now, he's not the sole deliverer, but here we see that in God's providence and his working all things for his glory and for the good of his people, an important angel who is at God's command leading the armies of heaven. There are several places in Scripture that Michael's spoken of. He's spoken of in the book of Jude as well. But here in the, the counterpart to the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, we see a glimpse of Michael's role for the people of God. Hold your place there in Daniel 12, and would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible, I think it's going to be on 1034. Revelation chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and under her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And behold, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. And pause there. What is that a description? Well, it's a heavenly description of the coming of the Messiah. The woman being a sign of faithful Israel, elect Israel through which the promised Messiah would come. And notice, in this passage, it's later clearly identified that this dragon is the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, explicitly laid out in verse 9 of Revelation 12. He is seeking to destroy the coming Messiah. Here in these first eight verses of Revelation chapter 12, you basically have a summary of the Old Testament in a lot of ways, in which the serpent 
knows that the seed of the woman will one day crush his head. And so he's after the seed of the woman. And in Moses' day, they kill baby boys that are born. And throughout, on and on. The serpent is raging war against the seed of the woman. But he will come. The Messiah will come. And then, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Here, in the great cosmic battle over God's fallen creation and the salvation of sinners, as the promised one is coming, what is Michael doing? He's raging war against Satan and the dragon in the heavenly realm. And we can't ex exactly affix the chronology of what's happening, but I think it's a good picture of the angel of war on behalf of God's people. And we can't be certain of this, but I'm certain that demons would have loved to take in out the Messiah as he was conceived in the womb of a Virgin Mary. That they would have loved to possess a man and come and not allow him to see the light of day. The whole time as the Son of God takes on our flesh, becomes the God-man, vulnerable to the pains and suffering of this life, I think it's fair to say that in the heavenly realm, Michael the archangel was fighting the battle. And I can't say much more than that, but he is the warrior assigned for God and his people to accomplish his purposes. And this is a great encouragement that when we feel weak, that the host of heaven is working towards our deliverance. And that though we face a great spiritual enemy, that there is the armies of our Lord waging a battle that cannot be seen. That's the first reason to hope. He says it's going to be the worst that, that the people have ever seen, that no nation has ever seen before. But behind the veil, God has employed Michael and the armies of heaven for his purposes. Then there's a second reason for hope that Daniel is given and for the, the people of God here. If you turn back to Daniel chapter 12, from Revelation chapter 12, the second hope there is that the one that Michael is fighting for is a specific people. That it's a personal people. It's not just a people in general. It is those who are in the book. Look there at the end of verse 1. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. They will be written in the book. 
as one commentator has put it, when the end of the world comes, there will be nothing else that really matters except whether our names are in that book. Our reputation and achievements among men and women will be of no more importance. Our possessions will have been destroyed and our acceptance with God is all that matters. God knows who are His and at the time of great tribulation and trouble, He doesn't forget who belongs to Him. Their names are recorded. They're recorded in a book, a book that is written with indelible ink. And every person written in that book, Christ has died for them. Christ has given his blood for them. Christ has taken their name with him to the cross in order that their debt might be paid, in order that they might be delivered from the darkness, in order that for them, the last enemy, death, would be defeated in his death and resurrection. This is a great reason to hope. The great reason to hope for God's people is not a promised golden age to come. It is not a, a day in which the church will meet victory apart from the return of Christ. A complete and total victory. That the kingdoms of this world will rage against the kingdom of God here. And though we might have trouble properly seeing the scoreboard of who's winning and who's losing, and in fact, oftentimes it looks like we are way behind. Doesn't that feel like what it's like to be a Christian on the campus? Maybe in your office, you always feel like the underdog, always feel like the one who is like Daniel and his friends, brought on someone else's turf. And that the very air you breathe is contrary to what you believe. Daniel knew that the people of God in every age, and especially at the end, we'll experience that. And Daniel's given these reasons to hope. That God has his armies of heaven battling on the behalf of those who he's written in, in the Lamb's book of life. The hope goes beyond that. To verse 2, look there. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Part of what is to come and the hope of God's people is the hope of resurrection. Here, this is an explicit statement about the resurrection. The resurrection is one of the, the, the mysteries of, of the gospel that is under, would seem many veils in the Old Testament, but it's there. And it's in light of Christ coming in his resurrection and the promised resurrection of his people that passages like this are more clearly discerned and understood. But this is within the Old Testament itself. It's not 
an anomaly. There are other places in which God had told his people and dropped hints and pictures of a resurrection to come. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. There, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make me known the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. There, there is the promise that God's Holy One would not see corruption, but those also who belong to his people would know the fullness of joy. Right hands at pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Psalm 49, verse 15. There the psalmist says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Psalm 73, 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who am I of heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. God is the strength of our heart, my portion forever. And there's other examples. Hosea speaks of returning to the Lord in Hosea chapter 6. And when God's people were to return to the Lord, that on the third day he will raise them up. Ezekiel 37 Ezekiel has shown the, the vision of the valley of the dry bones. That their hope is cut off apart from the hope of resurrection and graves are opened. And flesh and sinew come back on the dry bones. And the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 26 verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And here Daniel is told the same and similar promise. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And when you hear dust of the earth, it is intentional to, to remind us of our creatureliness, but to remind us of the promise of Genesis. That God formed man out of the dust of the earth and promised eternal life upon obedience. And Adam, our first father, failed and forfeited eternal life. But Christ has come and he took on the dust of the earth. He took it to himself and he rose from the dead victorious over the consequences of Adam's sin and fall. And here it says that God's people, you should be raised from the dust. You should be raised to everlasting life. But also this speaks of not just the resurrection of the believer, but the general resurrection that all those who lie in the grave will be raised to face the judgment seat. Here, it says that some will be raised to everlasting life. 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That those who betrayed their maker, that those who broke God's law, that those who remained in Adam, the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath, they too will be raised. Raised to everlasting contempt. Everlasting is a frightening word when it's matched with contempt. As Stuart Allah has put it, the fact that all are going to rise does not mean that all will enjoy the same sort of resurrection. Resurrection day will be a division day. The king in his glory will divide the members of the human race from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, 32. No grave will fail to give up its dead. John 5, 28 through 29. Wherever the dead have been laid, they will be summoned to the great court. Revelation 20, verse 13. At Christ's word, each member of the human race will pass to one or the other of the two destinies, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The people of God are given great hope but also a great warning here. So how does this inform their living? Well, I think in verse 3 and 4, it shows us how it should inform our living. Verse 3, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This word about a resurrection for all, some to everlasting light and some to Everlasting contempt for the believer is a reason to go and to witness and to share. And there it says, those who are wise shine like the brightness. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You see the stars at night in the darkness. They are turning those who are in the darkness to the sun This word about the resurrection to come informs the witness of God's people today. But then also, Daniel is instructed to take the words, to shut the words up, to seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. The people of God are to seek those still in the darkness and share this word that is to come. But they themselves are to cling to the word. They are to hold on to the word. They are to, as Daniel's told, to shut up the words and seal the book. Now, on a first reading, that may sound like he's saying, conceal it, don't read it, hide it, put it away. But that's not the instructions that Daniel's given here. To shut up the words means don't add anything to the words. That this is what you've been given. This is true. There's nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away. Nothing to be taken away because it's to be sealed. Seal the book. In ancient times, you would seal a book 
in order to preserve the authentic message of the book. And so when a book would go out for publication and dis distribution, they would take an original copy that's been verified and they would put a seal on it in order that if there's a question about what was being distributed, whether it was accurate or not, then they would have that original with the seal in which they could break and compare. Daniel's told to not add and to preserve and to hold on to the word. In this last sentence here in verse 4, many uh, Old Testament scholars, they go back and forth. They can't figure out what it means. But I think it's clearly here a comparison between Daniel has been given the revelation. He's been given the truth. And though many will run to and fro, and knowledge will increase. Unless they come and submit to God's word, the most important knowledge is withheld from them. That is what we've seen in modern history, that there's been incredible advances in every field, in every intellectual study. There's a time that we live in today in which knowledge is readily available and increasing. But the most important knowledge and the most important truth comes from the Creator. And there's this almost contrast drawn between those who would cling to the words of the book and those who would run to everywhere else seeking answers. And God wants Daniel to know that he has given him what is necessary. It is the hope. It is the hope of glory. And it is his word to his people. But then, in the close here, in verses 5 through 13, we see why the people need this message of hope. We were told there in verse 1 that it's going to be a great time of trouble like never been seen, but here it comes further into it. In verse 7, it says, And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards the heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things shall be finished. It wasn't Daniel, it was one of the other figures who, who appear there at the Tigris River with Daniel and this heavenly messenger. And one of the, they said to the messenger, when will be the outcome of these things? And this messenger swears by heaven. Now normally, in the Old Testament, you would swear by raising one hand, this is such a somber and solemn oath that he raises both. What was solemn about it? Did you notice there? The time of the end would come when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. All these things would be finished. Daniel is told, and God's people, we know, and we should expect great and ever-increasing persecution in opposition. It shouldn't surprise us. We have a theology of the cross and a theology of glory is not 
what disciples of Christ cling to this side of his return. As Ian Duguid has put it, we must remember that the primary biblical image for the saint is not that of crusaders, but that of martyrs. And God is preparing his people to endure great persecution that is to come. But then we see that the persecution in itself will serve a purpose for God's people. There will be persecution at the end of history, but persecution itself has an end, a goal, a purpose. Look at verses 8 through 10. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The persecution for God's people will serve a refinement. It is not through persecution that the righteous become righteous, but it's in times of persecution that the true colors are revealed. Those who have trusted in Christ and have turned from their sins, when things get bad, that will be evident. And those who haven't, when things get bad, the wicked will act wickedly. And here, the persecution of God's people serves the purpose of refining the precious faith that they have in their Savior. As the Apostle Peter said, it has a good purpose Oftentimes we do not understand it, but it is serving a goal for our good and God's glory. It's like bringing a small child to the doctor for shots. That child, especially if they're not sick, they're thinking, why are they sticking a needle in me? I don't understand. It's one of the hardest things as a new parent to see the child just goo goo ga 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 and then just wah when the shot goes into the leg. And you want to reason with them and say, this is so you don't get the bubonic plague one day. One day. You don't, no, you don't have it right now, but it's a toddler. This is so you don't get a greater illness. It's serving a purpose. The pain, it does. It doesn't, the pain itself is not the end. It's not the goal. The persecution itself is not the end. It serves the end of refining God's people's faith. It does them great good, but it comes through great harm and pain. But the good news at the end of this chapter, in 11 through 13, though Daniel has many questions and though you and I are left with many questions, there will be an end of the persecution. There will be an end of the persecution. There, in verse 11, we're told that it will be 1,290 days and then 1,335 days. And this is one of the sections that will make you pull your hair out 
lose it, have it turn gray. It will give you indigestion, heartburn. And many men, much wiser than I, have said this is impossible for us to know on this side of glory. But there's a sense of it's going to be a long time. Three and a half years. Three and a half years at least. And then not just 1,290 days, 13 and 35 after. What is happening during this period? There's a reference to the abomination of desolation. This was the roughly three and a half year period as first when Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century ceased the worship of the temple and brought in a pig and sacrificed it to the god Zeus. This is what's being recalled. God is preparing his people. He said, what will be the nature of the persecution? The nature of the persecution will be that the worship of God will come at great cost. The worship of God is something that we must not take for granted that in our place, in our time, in present United States of America, we have the freedom to do. We have the freedom to do that. We can post times on a website. We can invite you to come back for our Christmas Eve service at 7 p.m. on Tuesday night. We can go out and open the doors to the community, but this has not been the privilege that the church has known throughout church history and for large portions of church history. Coming to worship and gathering for worship has been under the threat of losing your very life, your livelihood, possibly your children, your family. But the good news here is that it's going to be limited. God knows the day when it is to end. God knows when the time of persecution is to end, and it will serve his purposes. And you can know that at the end, those who were the persecutors, unless they are turned to righteousness, they will suffer everlasting contempt, and God's people will be vindicated with everlasting life. And that's what Daniel is told here at the end. Verse 13, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. And you shall rest. That's a great promise. The promise of entering the land in which belonged to God's people, that they would do so in rest, and they would have rest from their enemies. And that you will stand in your allotted place. This is the Hebrew word that's used over and over again in the book of Joshua, in Joshua 14 to 21 when they're divvying up the land between the tribes. What is Daniel told here at the end? In this life, you will not return to Jerusalem, Daniel. But in the resurrection, you will have a place. You will have your allotment in the new heavens and the new earth. And so go. Go your way. 
take up and continue the work that you've been doing, the work of prayer, the work of recording the vision and the revelation, and know that rest is to come and that you have your place in the new heavens and the new earth. Three takeaways from this section of Daniel. In light of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, and the opportunity that still remains for those who don't know Christ to come to know him and to partake in everlasting life, and in light of the persecution that is promised to the people of God at the end, let us learn to value people over possessions. Now, that we would not treasure the things of this life, that we would hold them loosely, and that we would treasure the words of the book, that we would treasure that our name is in the Lamb's book of life. Second, that we would fear God and not Satan, that though Satan will continue to try to do as much harm, Michael and the armies of heaven can take care of him, much less the Messiah who has conquered sin and death. So therefore, in this time, we are to fix our awe and reverence not at Satan's power, but at our great God. And lastly, this reminds us to share the whole gospel. To share the whole gospel. Proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And when we call people to the Savior, tell them of his great mercy and grace. And tell them of the cross that disciples must bear until he returns. Tell them of the tribulation to come with the glorious resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. And in light of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 instructs the believers there to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing on the preaching of his word this evening. Our great God, forgive us in which we have hoped in the things of this life. We look to you. Forgive us when we relied in our own strength. And we were reminded that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Lord, many of us have become weary in our work. We've become weary in our service of the kingdom and the gospel. We're reminded that our labor is not in vain. That you are coming again. And you will do away with the evil one. And you will reward those who trust in your name. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.